Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Helen, a brilliant physicist and the protagonist of Julius Toronto's debut novel, How I Won a Nobel Prize, is on the brink of a scientific breakthrough in superconductivity that could save the planet from climate change. When her advisor is accused of sexual impropriety, Helen makes the decision to follow him, dragging along her husband, Hugh, to a new university the Rubin Institute, a refuge for the cancelled that promises a world of academic meritocracy with none of the bothersome moral policing, diversity, or conduct codes. Helen rationalizes joining the Institute as a choice to focus on her work in the service of a planetary need, understanding that she will have to ignore the moral bankruptcy of the place while drawing off its prodigious resources. In contrast, Hugh will find the Institute, hilariously abbreviated RIP, more and more loathsome. A satire of our present moment of cancel culture and woke radicalism, How I Won a Nobel Prize spares no one and nothing in its evisceration of academia and the moral righteousness that runs along the continuum between everything is an abomination and geniuses need to be simply left alone to work their brilliance. When when their project goes sideways, Helen finds a social life at Rubin in the form of an extramarital flirtation with a famous novelist at the Institute, Leo Lenz. In her constant equivocations about the moral failings of R.I.P., Helen and Hugh become increasingly estranged, with Hugh having found a like-minded community in the increasingly violent protesters at the walls of the Institute. Helen's scientific journey ultimately becomes intertwined with her social awakenings, but this is not a novel interested in easy resolutions of difficult cultural moments. Julius Toronto gives Helen a full thinking agency that is complicated and nuanced in addressing intractable differences in how society views its own shortfallings. That is to say, he makes her human. And so we root for Helen, we root for the culture, we root for the planet, while finding ourselves doubled over at the vision of a society obsessed with absolutes of every kind. Julius's writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Review of Books, Chronicle of Higher Education, and some other places. For a while, he was a lawyer. Julius attended Yale Law School and Pomona College. He lives in New York. Welcome to Burned by Books, Julius. Hi, Chris. Thanks very much for having me. 
It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you. I want to start by saying that the that this novel is, in a way, on the bleeding edge of cancel culture literature. I think truly there are just a handful of books that have really sort of waded into this full force. And we're just now seeing a, a more continued literary engagement make its way into the mainstream, accompanied by uh, responses and representations in TV and film. Did it feel audacious to take on a cultural phenomenon that still feels like a live wire? Uh, yeah, it. I mean, it felt somewhere between audacious and totally nuts. <laughs> and but that is a big part of I think what kept me writing and engaged and finding you know kind of new new places for humor and I hope that's also part of what gets readers interested and keeps them reading through the book um, is that you know the the more you can kind of capture that charge uh, the more exciting it is. Um, and then the risk is that you're going to end up fried and dead on the floor somewhere. <laughs> That's very well said. Uh, I, as I was reading it, I sort of vacillated back and forth on thinking about it as a satire or not. I mean, certainly aspects of the Rubin Institute are farcical. But you seem to play in the liminal spaces between um, satire and what I would think of as just a novel that is engaged in all kinds of cultural criticism. Did you set out to write it as specifically a satire, or did you want the novel to live in something like an in-between space? Much more in the in-between space. I'll, I'll confess, I did not think of it really as a satire while writing it, and I still don't the the best kind of the, the best way i've come to align kind of this satire label with what i hope the book does is that it's less a satire of kind of one particular side of the culture wars than of the wars at large mm. uh, that it it tries to show and kind of get some comedy out of people going too far in every direction, both on the right and on the left, um, and in the attempt to be neither right nor left. You know, Hel Helen, the narrator, is strenuously neutral, uh, <laughs> and that, you know, that that's funny in its own way too. Trying to stay out of it is funny in its own way. She's very funny, even in her neutrality and in her kind of flatness when she encounters these things that other people are lighting their hair on fire about. Uh, and I and I wonder if you were crafting her very specifically in that way. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think many writers, but just a lot of people generally, have some instinct to just like, please, like, don't get, don't drag me into this. Mm. Um, like, I have other stuff I want to do, and I was able to give her a scientific project that's so unbelievably important, you know, planet saving and Nobel Prize winning if she can do it, um, that she kind of has a better reason than most to ask for some quiet. Mm. Uh, but that desire for quiet, I think, is very general, or at least, you know, m many people at least some of the time just wish they could tune out and 
work on their own lives and their own little things that are important to them. Boy, that is very true. Uh, having Helen be the first person narrator is its own form of audaciousness, a kind of meta enacting of the thing that you are not really supposed to do as a contemporary writer, inhabit a subjectivity that you aren't, that you haven't experienced or embodied. And did this feel like an exciting prospect? And what did you learn from living inside Helen for a while? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the writing of her came very naturally to me, um, which is related to the specificity of her character, not kind of, not that it's kind of inherently audacious or not audacious to write across sex or gender or race, but that she was a particular woman that I felt I could write, um, which is different from saying like, oh yes, any type of female character is someone I could write. Um, so it, I, once I felt confident in what she sounded like and how she thought that kind of made her whole to me as a person. And I didn't really have any qualms about it after that. I, I knew that I would get asked about it. Um, but I, I think it's kind of amusing. There are many people who, uh, you know, friends and family who, you know, they're fascinated. Oh, how did you? Like, how did you write in this woman's voice as if that was like really a lot more complicated than writing in the voice of a quantum physicist who's a genius? The genius quantum physicist part, that part took a lot of research. A lot of <laughs> Helen is just kind of how I understand humanity and people to be. Yeah, there's there's one point in which Helen and uh, and Lens are are talking and they're talking about uh, string theory. And and Helen realizes at some point that Lens can talk in a kind of uh, narrative and, and metaphorical way about this thing, and that it's it's this dodge for knowing almost nothing about it, because it's really this mathematical principle that she has to know sort of the the very boring but very, very important math behind. And I wonder if that's sort of a stand-in for you a little bit as you're trying to, like, work through these, like, very difficult uh, phys physical principles. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that that is kind of a, almost a metafictional nod to the reader of, like, you're probably aware based on reading my bio and the fact that I wrote a novel rather than, uh, you know, work, worked in physics for my whole life. Uh, you're, you can probably guess that I can't do the math. Uh, <laughs> and that that's a way of letting some of the air out of a reader's worry about whether I'm pretending that I can do the math. Um, there's uh, there's very funny. Actually, it happens to be a an academic book that I just finished writing, and and someone read it, and they were like, "Well, this is very similar to something that happens in calculus, so you should talk about that." And I was forced to have this footnote in which I pretended like I could talk about something having to do with calculus, but it was it was amazing how fraudulent one feels when you're talking about those things. But you managed to do it in a in a really convincing manner. Like the, you know, the science and, and what she's working on feels just kind of natural to it, um, which must have taken a lot of research. It, it did take a lot of research, but I had a secret weapon who's mentioned in the acknowledgments. I have a good friend from 
high school who is, in fact, a quantum physicist <laughs> and has that rare gift of not only being really good at what he does, I assume, but amply able to explain things to uh, normal people. Mm. <laughs> that's a that's a one in a million quantity. Yeah, yeah, I know. Quality. I know. Uh, I'm like you. You should you should be uh, you should be on TV like Carl Sagan. Uh, anyway, <laughs> what, when I was working on the book, I talked to him on the phone all the time, and some of that was him actually helping me understand, and mm -hmm. some of it was just me writing down the words he used, oh, so yeah, that yeah. I would kind of be able to parrot a plausible way for someone in this line of work to talk. Yeah, the um, one of the interesting things that you do with the science is you you play with the metaphors that are at the substance of how one explains or thinks about these things. Towards the end of the book, Helen is comparing the Cooper pairing, the fundamental principle of superconductivity to a, to a marriage. And then we get examples of Schrodinger's cat all over the place. And, and I'm wondering how you thought of metaphorical language as part of science's work and what that allowed you to do with it in fiction. Yeah, I mean, the, the Cooper pairing metaphor, uh, it's probably too involved to explain on a podcast, but that was a little bit of kismet. I, I started down this path with this being her problem before I really understood how it worked mm. and then discovered this almost too tidy metaphor that really works with the understanding of the science. So that kind of revealed itself to me as I was writing. But throughout certainly um, 20th century history, um, probably the last few hundred years, there has always been a alignment or jostling between the evolution of scientific thought and the evolution of cultural and artistic trends that, you know, the relativity changed changed the way novelists wrote. I think it had a profound impact on modernism. So those of us who are kind of outside the actual scientific work, nonetheless, want to understand to the extent we can what it means for the universe and how we fit into it. Mm. And I think it's a very natural thing for people to kind of try to connect some actually provable physical rule to the way they think and the way they feel and their understanding of the way the world works. And I, I do that in the novel, but I also make a point of uh, teasing myself and teasing other people for doing it too much, mm -hmm. right? It can, it can be too mm -hmm. tidy to mm -hmm. say, well, we have general and special relativity, therefore it's all relative, right? That's a little path. <laughs> yeah, and and doesn't quite get to the root of what uh, Einstein was thinking about. Right. But I, right. Uh, but I love that call out to modernism and, and the scientific massive sea changes that certainly evolved the way that artists think the thought about representation and and form and things like that. So it's nice to think about that and also to think about how we can tease ourselves as people who write and and attempt to kind of draw on the these vast scientific principles to bring different kinds of meaning to our work. So I, I like that that's they're both operating in the novel. 
before we get to the nature of the novel's representation of what might be loosely called cancel culture, I, I wonder if you'd read us a section so we can get a sense of your tone and also of the sort of hilariousness of the Rubin Institute. It's a it's a party, and 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 maybe you can give us a little setup for that scene. Sure. So this is about sixty pages into the book. Helen and Hugh, her partner, have gotten to this island, gotten to the institute. Helen has been deeply immersed in her work. She kind of arrived there and she buckled down and spent a long time coding and working in her lab. And then this party scene is the first time that she has sort of emerged and begun to observe the culture of the Institute. Um, she is with her advisor, who is named Perry, and he has just introduced her to a Philip Roth-like novelist named Leo Lenz. Um, and she she knows about Lenz because her dad likes reading him and is simultaneously a little bit kind of awestruck and suspicious of him just as what she's about to observe at this party of the canceled, lavishly funded by the Institute's billionaire founder, um, is also awesome in its own way and suspicious in its own way. Uh, the other detail you might need is that the center of the Institute, the main building, is a very tall tower um, described at one point in the book as unmistakably a phallus, <laughs> and it is called the endowment. <laughs> it's one of my favorite details of the novel. We were now outside the endowment under the strings of lights and the heat lamps. The air smelled electric like autumn and white wine. It was undeniably a romantic setting. I was noticing things I didn't usually notice, like the color of Lenz's hazel eyes and the drape of his shirt and pleated slacks. I wondered how one broached the topic, that one's father is obsessed with one's new acquaintance. For a while, we walked quietly together. We brushed by a podcaster who had defended his theoretical right to use the N-word when quoting song lyrics. He was talking to a classicist who had actually used the N-word and meant it. Behind them was an Asian-American woman, a law professor who often went on TV to defend the police after they'd shot a person of color. All three took Oyster's Rockefeller from a slim Hispanic waiter. Soon Lenz and I arrived at the dark edge of the party. Waves pulsed against the cliffs below. The air was suddenly oceanic and unheated. We'd drifted outside the event and now turned to charge back through, back into the flimsy jazz. Leo paused. He asked, Whom in there do you recognize? There was the winner of the Bancroft Prize who had, as department chair while drunk, felt up an untenured assistant professor. There was Blackface Metzger. Over there, I pointed at a Percy Englishman who had once been the great investigator of the New Yorker. He used force, didn't he? Hugh says that guy should be in prison. And over there, of course, that's R. Kelly. Yes, good, exactly. There are differences, said Leo. My pet hypothesis, to speak your language is that these variations in past sins actually determine social clustering. The faculty are nearly all men, nearly all white, so this is how we've sorted ourselves into tribes. It's almost Buddhist. You come here, are dipped in the river on the way, but something of your past remains. Lenz's eyes queried me. His writing often played at the margins of Eastern philosophy. Had I known this? Had I intentionally referred to one of his subjects? My eyebrows responded, yes. Lenz directed me from group to group. 
and explained his taxonomy, the caste system he had identified. The highest status belonged to those like myself and Hugh, who had come for ancillary personal reasons. We were sought after, for we alone had power to absolve, to forgive. The next level down were those who had committed only aesthetic offenses. This was Lenz himself, he insisted, and who might as well have stayed, however uncomfortab uncomfortably, on the mainland. Then came those, the Institute's core constituency, who really did not have dignified options on the mainland. This broad category included those who gracefully accepted exile, Perry, those who were thought to be lucky not to be in prison, and those who had in fact been to prison but were out again. At the very bottom, the lowest caste, were those who remained aggrieved, those who could not accept their sentences and hungered for opportunities to explain the injustices they had suffered, how they had been right all along. This group was the lowest caste not because zero injustices had occurred. Probably some had. No one in her right mind thought university administrators were actually infallible. <laughs> but it was not good institute style to long for the old world. The ethos was supposed to be RIP to the old world. Eyes front, we have a moon colony to build here. Lenz and I had monopolized each other for about an hour. I was building toward asking him something personal. I wanted to hear about Saul Bellow, who had once been Lenz's champion, and about Kathleen Turner, whom he had almost married. In the crevices of Lenz's face, I, I glimpsed ruins of a lost culture, a life of analog romanticism and glamour and solitude so outdated that no one I knew would tolerate it. Certainly Hugh couldn't, but its appeal was visceral to me. Lenz had been such a merciless artist, a danger to himself and others. He had betrayed his family with the book that made him famous, and after that, had managed to betray everyone else whose betrayal might bring literary profit. He lived as if true virtue meant to never be co-opted, to be understood only on one's own terms. It was impossible not to envy this. So I wanted more than he was giving me. It was just about to ask what he was writing these days when he said, This was lovely, Helen. However, I am turning into a pumpkin. Thank you so much. I the the idea of the cast is doing a lot of work in, in, in this section. And it's both very, very funny and it's kind of almost like a, a Dante levels of hell uh description of the various perpetrators, uh, you know neutral through quite bad, but it's also sort of setting up a way in which we can think about the extremes to which a, a culture will apply a kind of judgment to people. And I wonder if you could talk about how you came up with the idea of thinking of this scene as a caste scene and what those castes tell us about the Rubin Institute and the culture in which it exists. There was something intuitive to me about the idea that if you cordon off this universe of, kind of people who have gotten in trouble for one reason or another, the distinctions that people in that group want to make between themselves, like separating myself, oh, what I did wasn't that bad compared to this other guy. Everyone wants some righteousness, right? Even if you've already been cast out. And the I, I I also thought there was something kind of both funny and quite real about the dignity that would come from accepting, you know what, they don't want me. I'm I'm building forward here. I'm yes, I'm out of their world, but I'm building my own world. And that people who can accept that and kind of have some grace about 
becoming outcasts would have higher status and less insecurity than the people who kind of are still longing for something that they're probably never going to get back, which is mainstream acceptance. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of made sense to me that people are always going to look for status and for in-groups and out-groups and for righteousness over whoever they happen to be around, um, even if the rest of the world lumps you all together, and that there would be a range of reactions. And I, we, have, we see it all the time in the real world that there are a range of reactions to kind of getting culturally in trouble. Um, some mm -hmm. some people apologize and try to build forward. Some people deny that they ever did anything wrong, and that's such a personal thing, right? It matters what you've been accused of and who you are and who's you know, who you're in trouble with. Um, all of that kind of drives these differences in how we see people react even to the, the, the very problem of social opprobrium. And and even the moment that it happens in sort of whether you're right. early in in cancel culture history or late can can determine how how strong that opprobrium is. Right. right. Lens, who who you said yourself is a kind of stand-in for Philip Roth, uh, that you know idea of Philip Roth as having been perhaps kind of loosely drawn into the the broader spectrum of canceling is an interesting one. And it makes me think of that wonderful novel, Asymmetry, which came out quite a few years ago. Did, did you read that? I did read it. Um, um, and, I, and I wonder why you think Philip Roth is a particularly interesting uh, character for, you know, one of the higher casts in the, in the Rubin Institute and someone who you know, it elects in some ways to to um, to to take on the mantle of canceledness, um, but at the same time is representing someone who has sort of really kind of left the cultural landscape of his own accord. Yeah, um, I I read a lot of Philip Roth, sort of in preparation and while writing this. And one of the things that attracted me about kind of creating this alternate universe version of him, um, one of my friends described it as Uncanny Valley Philip Roth. Uh, <laughs> I thought was I love good. that. Because <laughs> um, he has hair. He has a lot of hair. In That's right. Book. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that made sense to me about him being there is that he is trying very hard to hold the middle of kind of ha having ideas that are friendly to a libertarian mindset, but also trying at least at this late point in his life to behave without abusing the freedoms that come with, you know, a lot of power. Mm -hmm. um, and I also thought it was it was useful to bring him in because this is such an old problem, right? We We have a new label for it cancel culture, but it's as old as human society. The Scarlet Letter is a novel that's very much about kind of the reaction of an outcast to a particularly doctrinal in-group um, and the betrayals that are involved in that. And then, you know, 30 years ago, Philip Roth wrote The Human Stain. And the Human Stain is about many of the same, I guess I would call it kind of a social mood 
um, that went into public judgment of the Lewinsky scandal, mm-hmm. at, especially as reflected on campus. So there was a different kind of righteousness and a different kind of piousness, but it's sort of like the same melody being played in a different key. Um, that at least that that's how I hear it some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so has Is that book so- really thirty years old? Uh, it's, I guess, it wouldn't be quite thirty years old. It would be uh, late late nineties, right, or early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I it just, I, I mean, it's it. I, I only said that because it shocked me at how old <laughs> I am becoming. Not that, not yeah, that the it, book could possibly be that old. <laughs> right. I, it, it can't. It can't be quite twi- quite thirty years old. But I think it's between twenty and thirty years old. <laughs> Let's uh, call it in its twenties, yeah, so that yeah, I feel right, better. <laughs> right. So he he kind of fit into this world as someone that I think I and many readers won't quite know how to feel about, right? That he says some stuff I agree with. He says some stuff I disagree with. He behaves in ways that I both admire and don't admire. And it's pretty hard to untangle it. And that's mm-hmm. that's part of the problem with dealing with you know, really any any person who you learn enough about, but especially artists, since artists, uh, I'm not sure there's statistical proof of this, but we uh, have known to be selfish some of the time. <laughs> I, oh, I think there's there's got to be some some data on it at this point. Yeah, the uh, you you like that as a principle as a writer the the not being able to untangle the you know to put it bluntly the good from the bad or at least the the something that you would admire from the something you might not admire. And and that's a really interesting principle to bring to the question of cancel culture. And I, I wonder if it was hard for you even to kind of hold that balance as, you know, uh, characters, un, you know, undoubtedly, even those with supposedly the moral high ground show us different kinds of true colors. Yeah, I, I mean, it is... I think it was hard for me as a writer, and I think it's hard for all people, right? We we don't get anyone in our lives, including ourselves, who is perfect. And we're always navigating different shades of, well, you know, my my good friend, old friend, someone I've been close with for 20 years just did something that you know, like I, I think is wrong in his relationship or whatever. Right. We're constantly trying to negotiate our own judgments and attachments and not being sure how you feel is, for me, an extremely ordinary experience. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't want to be too judgmental or dismissive. And you also recognize that uh, perhaps you have required kind of forgiveness and forbearance for yourself some of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's like the project of humanity it's trying to trying to negotiate how to draw lines and when you actually need to versus when you can avoid it and how to maintain you know kind of both love and relationships that cross over and survive even rather harsh judgments right mm-hmm. you know people people who yeah, people who go to prison for murder, they still have mothers and their mothers probably still love them. And I think that's probably right, you know? Mm, yeah. 
Uh, Helen's husband, Hugh, uh, warily accompanies her to live at the Rubin Institute. There he becomes attached to the protest movement that sees Rubin and and his university of the canceled as a space of uh, unrepentant sexism, racism, and, and lots of other kinds of isms. Their relationship uh, starts to falter as Hugh sees Helen tacitly acceding to the ills of the Institute by taking part in its social life and drawing from its resources. And Hugh becomes increasingly radicalized towards something like a, vi a violent protest. The magnetic poles of Hugh's protest and the Institute's conservative ideology create a tension in the novel's vision for the world. How does Hugh's character arc uh, toward, for lack of a better word, wokeness, give us a sense of how to understand the Institute and how to understand the way in which those far ends of that continuum begin to mirror each other? I mean, he, he reacts to the Institute in ways that are infuriating to Helen because she she doesn't want to have to think very hard about the people she's relying on, the money, the, the source of the money that is funding her work and the kind of the her advisor in particular, who has been sent there for good reason as far as she knows. So she really wants to be able to set all of kind of the Institute's messiness and ugliness aside. And he is just absolutely livid about it, in particular because the billionaire founder of the Institute is not merely kind of setting up this place that is a safe haven. He's really making, he's really being a show off about it, he's saying, look, you can't touch me. I have all this money. I can do whatever I want. We're all having a great time. We're eating amazing food and having great parties and he's being a bit of a troll mm. and the we see it all the time in our political life and cultural life is one side prods the other and the other side prods back and that escalation can be kind of dangerous at times so his Hughes kind of escalating wokeness is not merely kind of his own independent evolving thinking. It's that the other side, as he perceives it, keeps doing stuff that forces him into this corner where he thinks, maybe I have no option but to be really, really extreme because mm -hmm. every compromise I've tried to make gets taken advantage of. Um, and, you know, I, I identify with that. Uh, and I think many people do, where if, if you hold certain convictions um, and then you, or if you try to be reasonable and then you see your reasonableness being steamrolled by extremists, you start to think, oh, I have no option but to be extreme myself. Mm -hmm. there, there's an interesting moment in, in which it takes place when Helen is, is starting to fall a bit for, for Leo Lenz, and, and she asks him why writers never write about work other than than that of writing itself. He has a glib answer, but it remains, a, I think, a salient question. I can think of a number of contemporary writers who engage with work as work, but it was Brandon Taylor's real life that seemed an interesting analog to what you're doing with scientific work in the novel. 
Can you talk about the appeal of engaging with work qua work in fiction and why it was uh, science that called to you as a particular kind of work that you wanted to dramatize? Yeah, I mean, I I think about this all the time, um, in part because it strikes me as a really interesting artistic problem. Uh, it's interesting that it's such a general problem to write interestingly about work, mm -hmm. especially when not everyone hates what they do for a living. Right. <laughs> a, a, lot, a lot of people do. Uh, but a lot of people kind of take pride in what they do and, or you know, their mood gets radically changed based on whether they're succeeding or not succeeding at the work they're doing day to day. And that there there's, I'm convinced there's real drama in it because I've felt it. Many people in my life have felt it, but it's extremely hard to write about in mm -hmm. a way that engages a reader's attention. So the, the science in the book is, I mean, it's much realer than it would be if I hadn't had help from my physicist friend, but there's you don't need to understand all that much about what Helen is doing in order to root for her, I hope. But there, I mean, David Foster Wallace is a, um, he was a big writer for me, especially when I was younger. And his last novel, The Pale King, mm -hmm. is an attempt to run directly at this problem. He's trying to write about it. That's so true. Yeah. And he didn't finish it. There are some amazing sections of that book. Uh, a friend reminded me recently that Charles Lamb, you know, the essays from Ilya. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he was an accountant. He hated being an accountant, but he did, I think, write some essays about the work of being an accountant. <laughs> so every once in a while, someone figures out a way to do it. Uh, but it's it's interesting that it's so hard. The obvious explanation is that it's just, mostly work is dull, and the only reason mm. you care about mm -hmm. it is that someone pays you to care about it. But there are also exceptions, and artistic work seems to be exciting for people to think about. Uh, and I, I wish I had the answer of how to get people excited about each other's jobs. Um, but it's funny because I would say that I, I agree that the general reading um, population is very excited by artistic work being represented in novels or, or film, but that artists themselves often dread the work and find it, you know, very anxiety provoking and difficult and lonely. Uh, and so it's interesting that they do end up wanting to represent something that for many artists is, is, is something that they fear. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I think that is an indication of the real drama of it, right? It's that, that fear and that anxiety and the loneliness of it. The novelist recognizes that he or she is having an emotional experience while working, mm -hmm. but it then becomes very hard to imagine other forms of work having that same emotional range uh, for reasons that are opaque to me. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, like, I mean, I, I was a lawyer for five years and I had 
plenty of that, right? I had plenty of kind of, oh, I think I did this really well and I sent it off, but then the people I worked with weren't weren't so pleased with it and I just felt crushed and like, oh, Julius, you mm. idiot, you should have like, you know, should have done this, should have done that. And moments of you know, soaring enthusiasm about um, the work I was doing. So it it does exist elsewhere, but because writers um, and artists have this relationship to art, the, this emotional charge and relationship with artistic creation in particular, we maybe mistakenly think it's a unique problem. Like, oh, artists don't or non-artists don't have this experience. Oh, that's that that's really helpful, actually. Do you do you like me uh, often like find hysterical depictions of of writers in film and television where there's like these moments of the muse overtaking them and they're madly typing often on a typewriter, even if it's a contemporary thing and sort of words fly out onto the screen? Yeah, I, I wish I had never seen one of those in my life because it <laughs> like subconsciously it's always the standard to which I'm holding myself, even though it, as far as I know, it has never happened in the history of <laughs> artistic creation that uh, I, I, I feel like just sits the down and flows. <laughs> I feel so much the same. Uh, so before I let you go, I, I'd love to know a little bit about things you're you're reading and loving right now and, and anything you might want to recommend for the listeners of the show. Yeah. Um, I just read a wonderful novel called Cassandra at the Wedding by Dorothy Baker. Um, it, it's really perfect or damn near perfect. Um, oh, about, wow. I, do, I don't know it. Um, it was reissued by New York Review of Books. Classics. Oh, they do such good things. Um, I think it was reissued maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Um, okay. It's about twins, one of who kind of plan to have their life together um, as twins, but one of them decides to get married. So the other one is being left behind. Oh. Um, I read a great intellectual history of Christian thought called Dominion by Tom Holland. Um, that was kind of thanksgiving to into december reading and there's a great book coming out in may i got to read it early because i know the author a little um called the eighth moon by jennifer cabot okay k-a-b-a-t um that is i i've read very little like it before it's a mix of personal memoir and local history of a piece of the Catskills where there was a socialist uprising in the mid-19th century. Oh, wow. Um, that, that that is That's a shocking place for that to occur. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and it, it's really wonderful writing and the harmony between her own experience of moving to this part of the country where she'd never lived and learning its history and seeing how the history of 170 years ago has such, I mean, such a close connection to the politics of particularly the left um, today. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating. I'm really excited for that book to come out in May. Yeah. Oh, I want to read that. I'm, t I'm totally fascinated by just even the the, the geography and history of that place containing this this history that I had no idea about. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, these are these sound wonderful, and I haven't read any of them, and I'm excited to to recommend them. But I really want to recommend How I Won a Nobel Prize um, by Julius Toronto, uh, which you will absolutely love. It is hilarious. It's thoughtful. It builds such human characters and makes us recognize both the ridiculousness of our moment, but also the portent. And it's been such a, a pleasure getting to talk to you about it, Julius. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Julius Toronto for coming on the show to talk about his marvelous debut novel, How I Won a Nobel Prize. You can find links to purchase How I Won a Nobel Prize and all of Julius's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.